embrace the fact that really, really important change is happening under our feet right now in the partnerships world. Because the change that's happening is actually sitting outside of the partnerships realm and sitting in the realm of how products get built and interconnectivity between companies takes form in the very first place. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Menzion, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders in this forum to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Menzion. Welcome or welcome back to The Ultimate Guide to Partnering. I'm Vince Menzion, your host. And as we kick off the four-year anniversary of this podcast and leap into 2021, I'm thankful to all of the amazing thought and business leaders who've come to this podcast to share principles, success strategies, and best practices that help technology organizations thrive during this age of change and transformation. As we kick off this new year, I'm excited to be joined for this special series by some of those industry thought leaders to help each of us better prepare for what we can do to optimize success in 2021. For this episode of the series, I am joined by Bob Moore, co-founder and CEO of Crossbeam, a partner ecosystem platform that helps companies build more valuable partnerships. I was excited to welcome Bob as a guest as he has a strong perspective given the work his organization does with vendors to build strong partner co-selling. In this episode, Bob and I discuss his organization, mission, focus, and value, his perspective on what he has seen in the market and the channel, and advice for our listeners on optimizing for success in this new year. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I enjoyed spending time with Bob Moore. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Vince, it's great to be here. Long overdue. Oh, way long overdue. We've been talking about this since the summer, and I'm excited to finally welcome you as a guest to the podcast. Our paths have been crossing for years now. You have an amazing career, and you're an entrepreneur who's doing some really great work in the partner ecosystem. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. Amazing. Yeah, it's great to be here and way to set the bar. Uh, you're really, <laughs> your listeners are about to be gravely disappointed. I totally doubt that, <laughs> but I, I'm excited. You know, you live in Philadelphia. I spent 25 years in the Philly region. We could talk about sports. We won't, we won't agonize over that today, but I do want to focus in first on you and your business. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and your organization, Crossbeam? Sure. Crossbeam is really a company that I don't think could have existed if I didn't live through some real pain points related to partnerships at previous companies I started. So um, prior to Crossbeam, I co-founded two other businesses, one called RJ Metrics, which was in the data analytics space. It's now part of Adobe and one called Stitch Data that was even nerdier than RJ Metrics. It was in the data infrastructure space. It's, it's now part of talent. And at both of those companies, they were really partner heavy businesses because they had a lot to do with moving data around and there were a lot of technology integrations involved. And we just kept running into this set of problems that you could almost describe as like a data standoff problem. 
where you get into a situation with a partner and it could be a technology partner, it could be a channel partner, it could even be a potential acquirer or like a corp dev relationship. But we'd want to answer these really, really simple questions. Things like how many customers do we have in common and who are they? Or are my sales reps currently trying to sell to any of the same companies that your sales reps are trying to sell to? And it turns out it's really, really hard to answer those questions. You know, my data is in my big data silo, my systems of record, your data is in your big data silo. And if we want to draw a Venn diagram between my data and yours, uh, it's hard. There's a lot of technical challenges. You know, we might have, I use Salesforce and you use HubSpot or, you know, the way that we represent leads and opportunities and things might be different. How do you make an apples to apples comparison technically? Um, but then there's also this whole universe of trust uh, and in an era of GDPR and CCPA and caring a lot about compliance and privacy, how do you go about the process of figuring out where your data sets intersect when it's impossible to draw a Venn diagram unless somebody has both of the data sets? So you, know, you need to grossly overshare what's in your data in order to get the answer about where it intersects with your partner. So it was just a mess. And what was shocking to me after those companies got acquired was that you get a you know, an opportunity to look at how these bigger enterprise companies run and all the same problems are there. It's not like this is solved up market or that the biggest companies in the world have this all figured out. This was a very universal problem that kind of spanned from the earliest startups and the smallest agencies all the way up to, you know, global system integrators and Fortune 500 SaaS businesses. So the answer, which we kind of pulled together around 2018 was, what if you built something that functioned more like an escrow service for data? Uh, something that was a service that sat in between companies that were trying to partner with each other and provided this secure third-party environment where both people could connect their systems of record, like their Salesforce, and you know define these matching lists that were relevant to them, like these are my customers, these are my prospects, and actually be able to draw those Venn diagrams and get the answers out the other end while having confidence that all of the other underlying data is kept private and secure to both sides. And that's what Crossbeam is. So we came to market in January of 2019. So really, we're, we're coming up on our two-year anniversary here. And at this point, we've got about 1,800 companies that are now uh, using the platform, dozens of large publicly traded businesses, mostly in SaaS and technology verticals, and you know the partner ecosystems that surround them now onboarded. And it's just really exciting to see that network graph grow. And, you know, we're kind of becoming like the LinkedIn for data and helping facilitate a lot of collaboration and co-selling and account mapping that just wasn't possible before. So it's it's been a great ride. It sounds it. And, you know, one thing I, from a clarification perspective, because, you know, I've had Jay McBain on, in fact, talks about this incredible ecosystem we're seeing of uh, solutions that are available out there. What is Crossbeam and what is it not? <laughs> That's a great, great question. Because I think in general, partner technology as a category, with all due respect to the excellent companies that are out there and have kind of paved the way, it, it has been a, a little bit of a stale category over the last decade or so where, you know, you've got a category of technology out there that could kind of be classified as PRM or partner relationship management platforms where they do a very particular set of things and they do it very well. You know, if you've got a large channel partner universe and you need to manage things like 
marketing through those partners, learning management for those partners, streamlining onboarding, taking care of referrals and incentives and things like that, doing lead registration through through people filling out forms. You know, th- these are the things that PRM does, but it's a very kind of workflow centric and forms based approach to using technology to grow and manage partner ecosystems. It really, I mean, the name management is right there in the name, right? It, it, the, the M in PRM. And it is really about how to actually orchestrate the existence of these partner ecosystems. What we're doing is in a very different area and it's complementary to those, those PRM systems because we are kind of the data platform for partnerships. We are actually um, serving as more of a force multiplier for those partnerships that you already have by providing a way for you to build up and scale and measure the actual cross-pollination of your customer sets and your leads and your sales pipelines, and to do that in a responsible and compliant um, and kind of technologically modern automated way. So while a PRM system could be a really valuable asset for you know, the, the, the management of that partner universe and kind of the mechanics of how it works, you can think of Crossbeam as being more the, the discovery and execution engine for actually doing the work of generating partner influence revenue. And that's, that's where we sit. Um, I think another what we are not distinction that's really important is that we're not a marketplace and we're not a co-op. And and what mm-hmm. I mean by that is every relationship that exists on Crossbeam is a peer-to-peer double opt-in relationship. These are partners that were already partners before they joined Crossbeam. They they were connected with one another. They understood that they had overlapping customer profiles. And just like, uh, again, like LinkedIn for data, Somebody sent an invite and they mutually agree that they want to partner. And everything they do on Crossbeam between them is specific to them. You know, the, what data gets shared under what circumstances and what workflows are enabled. Whereas compare that to, say, a co-op where you'd have a situation where a whole bunch of people who maybe they know each other and maybe they don't all throw their data into one big pool and it gets anonymized and aggregated and you get some benchmarking data out. Or maybe you get your data enriched in some way by the collective knowledge of that group. We're not that and we're not in that business. And we're also not a marketplace. And what I mean by that is we're not where you go to randomly horse trade your data. You don't show up on Crossbeam and say, can you please connect me with a a random company I haven't met where we're going to trade leads with each other because it seems like that's a good idea. You know, that starts to get almost a little more into the, it almost feels more like an ad tech business or more like, you know, something where you're trying to, to manifest value out of nothing as opposed to enrich all the really hard work that these partner professionals are doing to build this partner infrastructure to begin with. And we are, at least in this phase of the business, extremely focused on really being that network uh, as opposed to being a marketplace or or a co-op. So I'm a SaaS software provider and I've got a sales team and I also have a technology relationship, a partnership with maybe somebody who has a complementary solution. Mm -hmm. How would we organize and meet up together? Yeah, so this this is a great age-old problem that we we now sit very much in in the middle of because really you know when we talk about data sharing it can it can be kind of a scary term to throw around at the end of the day the information that's most valuable that people tend to want to know when they're collaborating with their partners is not all the nitty-gritty intimate details of you know who do you know at this company and what's their contact info uh it's actually who at your company owns this relationship? Uh, and what's the, what's the nature of that relationship that you have with them? And how can I actually facilitate 
getting my account executive connected to your account executive or getting my partner account manager connected to your partner account manager so that we can facilitate getting a warm intro made or cross-selling our products in some way or going to market together to sell our joint solution. And the motion that exists there in the old days was, and and frankly, uh, for most companies, it's still the new days doing this, which is emailing a bunch of spreadsheets around. The account mapping process was an exercise in, let me give you a giant list of all the companies we're targeting and who the reps are on our side that own them. And you can compare that against who you're targeting and your reps and we'll find some intersections using some fancy V lookups and, uh, you know, our best uh, Excel jujitsu, and we'll come out the other end with some action items. But the problem is it's really hard to do that matching and have it not miss a lot. It's very hard to do that frequently and have the data not get stale. So people end up doing it once or twice a year. They end up missing a lot. There's a lot of false positives, a lot of false negatives. In the Crossbeam world, you are connecting with a partner and you've already set up your account in such a way where Crossbeam has this very rich data set that is pulled directly from your CRM that's kind of been filtered down and qualified to, you know, just that list of whether it's customers that you're comfortable collaborating on with partners or it's prospects that you're hoping to get more information on. And that data stays up to date automatically over time as your data set grows and your partners have done the same exact thing. So what happens is in Crossbeam, you set up these reports that actually are literally Venn diagrams. Let me draw a Venn diagram between my prospect list and all of the customers of all of my partners. Or let me draw a Venn diagram between you know my account-based marketing target list and the prospects that are active opportunities for my two or three key partners out there. And when a new hit happens in the middle of that list, you can set up alerts, you can set up automations so that whether you're logging into the Crossbeam interface or you're consuming that data back in Salesforce or Some companies even push it to their Snowflake data warehouse and feed it into their business intelligence tools. In any of those circumstances, you're never missing an opportunity to have your partner ecosystem influence a deal, push a deal forward, source a new opportunity when that opportunity exists. The mechanism of Crossbeam automatically detecting these matches and routing that data to the right places is the key thing that sits in the middle. And it's so fundamentally different than how people would do it in the past. I love what you had to say here and this whole Venn diagram. I'm also starting to see kind of a triangulation, if you will, right? There are multiple partners involved. The customer is making decisions across maybe two or three partners, or maybe there's a channel strategy that includes maybe a transactional partner, an influence partner, and maybe a delivery partner. Does your solution allow those multiple organizations to collaborate together? Yeah, this is this is where it gets really fun because you know, even though every individual relationship is kind of this point to point relationship that you have on Crossbeam, at the end of the day, after you've made a lot of those relationships real and, and kind of established those partnerships in our platform, you don't just have a bunch of singular relationships, you have an ecosystem surrounding you. And you can go in and build out these reports and set up these notifications and automations, not just based on singular overlaps, but based on a Venn diagram that has multiple components. Um, And it's so relevant increasingly these days because what you said is exactly right. The, The maturity of the API economy has deconstructed the stack in so many industries. I mean, even if you look at the the business intelligence industry where where RJ Metrics, my first company was based, you know, we started that company in 08 and we were all bundled up in one product, a data warehouse, a 
data pipelining ETL product. We were a dashboarding and visualization product. We were a data transformation product. And we had a bunch of competition, like companies like Good Data and Burst and others that were the exact same. And fast forward to today, that whole product category is gone because it's been deconstructed into a bunch of different categories. Now, if you want to buy a data warehouse, you just buy a data warehouse. That's its own product. You pick, you know, Snowflake or Amazon Redshift or Google BigQuery or uh, the Microsoft Azure offering. You know, if you want a data pipelining product, you pick Stitch or you pick Fivetran or you pick Matillion. If you want data transformation, you can spin up DBT. You know, if you want a visualization platform, you can go buy Looker or Tableau or any of the offerings in that space. Um, so what was once one category is now four. Well, here's the problem. If I, just as a buyer, just want some charts and dashboards, I want business intelligence, now I have to go buy four products. Uh, they're going to be great products and they're going to be you know, best in class at what they do. And there's a reason that stack got deconstructed. But not only do I need to make these four purchases, I probably need some kind of system integrator or other party that's an expert on how to tie them together to make my experience as seamless as possible. And you see this all over the place. You see it in marketing and marketing automation. You see it in sales enablement and the ecosystem surrounding CRM platforms. So buying best-in-class technology and building out best-in-class offerings has gone from being the realm of a very verticalized buyer to a very horizontal ops persona that's stitching all this stuff together. And what comes with that is a complete revolution in the partnership space because Partnerships with system integrators and third parties become more important than ever because there's more attaching of these products that needs to happen. But even more importantly, the density of partnerships between SaaS providers becomes higher than ever because they're all interdependent on each other. Uh, the, the partnerships that exist are data partnerships. They're integration partnerships. And, you know, it would be very, very hard for Snowflake to sell its data warehouse if it couldn't demo the power of the data warehouse by plopping Looker on top of it uh, mm -hmm. and, and giving that as an example. Uh, or I guess Looker is part of GCP now. So I should say, you know, BigQuery uh, with, with Looker on top of it. Um, but this is a pattern that you see over and over. And it gets back to your question because the this interconnectedness where you have multiple partners involved, it's not an anomaly or an edge case at this point. It's actually the norm. And being able to look at a single prospect that you have through the lens of not just does this one partner of mine have a relationship, but what are all the different partners I have that represent all the different pieces of the stack and the services experience that are going to be required for me to win this deal? What is their, what's the fabric of their relationships with this company? And who are the ones I should be working with based on that? And without Crossbeam, it's virtually impossible to answer that question accurately. You're, you're just sticking your finger into the wind. I love how you're solving for this area because the complexity is enormous, as you as you point out. Uh, these multiple solutions, multiple influence points, systems integrators that have to stitch together these these solutions for the whole product, as as I refer to it, uh, for the customer. Yeah. Who are some of the key customers that you have in market, and why did they select you? Yeah. So we've got you know I would classify our customers into to three buckets. You know, one of them would be very large, kind of super node style, publicly traded SaaS enterprise companies. Uh, and I would love to rattle those names off for you uh, if uh, if only it was if only it was that simple. Uh, but I'd say at this point, we're you know we're now past a solid dozen of those. If you keep an eye on Crossroom.com, we'll have some some really great uh, great case studies on those. If you check out our reviews on G two, you'll see some some names there as well. If if you want to. Go see some of the individuals at those companies who are excited about the work they're doing with us. 
And then you've got this other category where it's kind of the long tail of ISVs or SaaS providers that exist in the mid-market. So, you know, these tend to be your traditional pre-IPO SaaS companies that might be anywhere from 50 to 1,000 employees, you know, five to $500 million in, uh, in ARR. Uh, and really, they're, they're part of that fabric I was just talking about. They tend to be very densely interconnected with one another. And we've got companies there. And that's where if you go to the case studies on our website, for example, you'll see a bunch of, uh, a bunch of names that are easy to rattle off. Folks like Chorus and Dialpad and Guru and Heap and Customer, Ring Central, Sendoso, Uberflip and others, uh, where they're part of the modern various versions of this modern best-in-class SaaS stack, whether it's in marketing enablement, sales enablement, business intelligence and data analytics, you know, fulfillment and logistics. We've got companies now in these very verticalized SaaS areas like learning management systems, HR technology, construction technology. We've got a, a big stronghold there. You know, these are all really interesting, exciting areas. And it's so fun to see them interconnect with each other. Like you get a big horizontal player that serves all those verticals and they become like a super node in the network graph that's connected to all these different clusters that exist in these, these various vertical areas. So it's been really fun to watch that all grow out. And then the third bucket I would say is partners that are not the ISV or the SaaS players, but that are actually in the, uh, in the value chain through services. So that would be system integrators, resellers, value-added resellers, agency partners, large global system integrators that we're seeing an increasing amount of, of penetration into in different verticals where they're actually in the, uh, they're on the services side, but they're in the partner ecosystems of many of these SaaS companies, particularly the larger ones. So those are the three big buckets. And I think they are, the universe needs to stay in balance with all of them using the platform because the super nodes become these big centers of gravity and the mid-market companies are the real kind of workhorses that are driving innovation and kind of the, you know, they're the, the glass chewing side of the crossing the chasm curve. And then the system integrators and the services folks are the long tail. Um, and there's just a, a, an endless number of those businesses that are kind of the engine, the tip of the spear when it comes to actually bringing this stuff to market. I, I love your visualization, by the way. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm picturing it in my mind right now. I've got the hyperscalers, the supernovas. I've got the vertical ISVs and horizontal ISVs. I've got the systems integrators. I also have influencers out there too, right? So they're all playing a, a role here. Sure, that's a big deal. And I, I think that's, you know, part of what we're doing here is running a little bit of that category creation playbook that you see in a lot of a lot of great companies that came before us do a great job of. And, you know, it's it's a gift and a curse doing that because the the gift is that you get to have a little more control over your own destiny in terms of how people see what you're doing and what the narrative is around that. But the curse is that you actually have to build it. Uh, it's like you're you're not just walking on a trail that exists. You're also swinging the machete in front of you, kind of chopping down the brush, and you know being able to work with influencers and thought leaders, and uh, hopefully fill some of the gap, uh, the vacuum that has existed in the partnership space around how modern SaaS 2.0 technology can actually change the way that partner professionals do their jobs for the better. It's been you know we're, we're really privileged to be able to help craft some of that story, and and hopefully you know create content that helps people in those roles be better at those roles. It's so great to see that the technology is there. I find that organizations, though, still struggle making the transition, if you will, from the Kumbaya meeting, like we all got together, the executive team, we did a quarterly review, we said this is the objectives we're going to go drive together. And then what I call where the rubber meets the road, the traction, the actual co-selling, the triangulation to go 
actually drive revenue and metrics together. Why do you think organizations get stuck during that that step? Yeah, it's a great question. We we see this all the time, and I I think I can give you our answer around how we how we tend to get people unstuck because you can imagine if that problem you just described exists, Crossbeam is going uh, Crossbeam is going to fail inside that organization. Like it's it's not going to take off. And I think one pattern that is very true if you look at the businesses where where Crossbeam usage has just taken off is that if you just have executive leadership buy-in and enthusiasm and you don't capture the hearts and minds of the you know the individual contributors the end users that are actually in the line of work inside of the business you get a lot of these kumbaya style meetings where you've got a press release and a handshake and a high five and not a lot of enablement behind it that is going to then push the actual doers inside of the company to create results in any kind of scalable, measurable way. And sometimes that press release is the goal. And there there can be these strategic styles of partnerships where there's upside to that being kind of the, the primary objective. But in reality, you'd always be better off if you've got some wood behind that arrow and you can go actually translate it into attributable results for your business over the next you know multi-year period, not just the moment of the press release. There's this universe of scenarios where, you know, it's very, very driven by the senior levels, but there's not connectivity down to folks that are actually going to do the work of executing on that partnership after the fact. You've also got the flip side, which is situations where you have partner managers or other individual contributors in the partnership org who've been given a huge amount of autonomy, but really, really struggle to get buy-in from executive leadership around what they're doing. And particularly in an area, in an era where technology partnerships and technology enabled partnerships become more and more important, people that are in partner organizations that are put on an island are just destined to fail because it's an inherently collaborative cross-functional role. Your entire job is to be a force multiplier for the entire rest of the, the revenue funnel and often the product organization as well. But if you don't have the executive buy-in, that's going to get you engineering resources, that's going to get you staffing resources, that's going to get you the dollars you need to do partner marketing work and go-to-market work. You really are kind of left to to scrap on on your own, and you get put in these circumstances where you know it's very very it's very very left on an island, and because of that, it's much more likely to fail. It's much harder to scale. It's harder to create results, which perpetuates the problem because you don't have reliable data to say, hey, here's why you should go invest in this partnership area. This this is a really really common pain point. So in in Crossbeam, we win when we can go above the line and below the line. When we are going into an organization and we have a very clear exec sponsor who is really excited about what we're doing, but frankly, more often than not, they don't even have a login to the platform. Like they, they took a demo of the platform and they've seen it and they understand how it works and they'll talk the talk about it and you know get on stage at their, their partner day, virtual events or whatever, and talk about how you should partner on Crossbeam. And they're the evangelizer and they're the ones that are able to, to make waves. And then we also have buy-in from those folks that are actually the doers, the partner managers, the partner account managers, the partner marketers that are using all of this information to go and take the results and turn it into a co-selling motion that involves account executives or turn it into a co-marketing motion that pulls in the marketing team. That's the key. So it's a long-winded answer to your question about solving it. But I think the interconnectivity between executive leadership whether that's on the partner team or the revenue team that it rolls into or whatever other team it rolls into. And the actual doers that exist there, in our experience, has been the key to making these things really, really work well. And it's shocking how often that's not there. And we we kind of become the fabric of how to make that connectivity actually exist and, and become real. 
I was going to use the term connective tissue, but you yeah. beat me to it. Dead yeah. on. Yeah. I, I see it, right? Because this is a this is a challenge. Organizations don't value partnerships, which is why the Kumbaya meeting, maybe it was in fact just to make the announcement, to just make a market statement. Yeah. But in many cases, they don't take it down to the actual, and they don't understand it. But the the, the field people do. They intuitively know that their success is around finding and stitching together your solution sets or having the right models of influence to drive success. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's that connective tissue between the two. It's really true, yeah. So what do you believe your areas for greatest growth are? Yeah, it's, again, being, being in this category creation mode gives you some really exciting opportunities to look at growth on multiple dimensions at the same time. So you can think about there's probably the most exciting part of this business is the fact that it's a network effects business, which is really rare in B2B SaaS. And, you know, initially when we got started, it was like pushing a boulder uphill because, you know, we should have never had a first customer, right? Because the first person that signs up has nobody to partner with. So, you know, we, Jess, our CRO and, and I used to talk about it like, we're always landing two jumbo jets on the same runway at the same time in order to make a new sale because we had to always get two companies to come on at once so they could partner with each other. And we've gotten to a point now in the business where for the most part, if you're signing up for Crossbeam, somebody in your partner ecosystem is already on there. And your ability to go on day one and have a fruitful experience where you're connecting with someone and getting that data set up and seeing some real value is, is much, much higher. And it's kind of changed the way that, that you know, we drive our, our onboarding motion and our sales motion and everything else. And so when I, I think about growth and think about the really just eliminating friction as much as possible from the natural organic network growth that happens in these businesses where it's very network effects driven. We've done a lot help facilitate that, probably the most meaningful thing is that, you know, if you're listening to this and you've never used Crossbeam before and you go sign up for Crossbeam today, chances are it's going to be free for you and it's going to be free for you for a while. We have a really aggressive free tier that basically gives away the entire product where as long as you're just using it to connect with partners and do account mapping and, you know, get these reports about where there are intersections, all of that is is completely free for unlimited partners, uh, unlimited data, unlimited users. It's only when you want to start pushing data back into your systems of record, like your Salesforce or your Snowflake or you know any of the companies that are in our technology partner ecosystem, that's when you buy up or upgrade to an enterprise license. So what that's done is made it so that companies just don't need to worry about the commercial aspects of bringing their whole partner ecosystem on board. You know, they, they can sign up and decide that they're going to use Crossstream and invite 100 partners on and say to those partners, this is totally free for you. You're going to sign up. You're going to connect your data. You're going to be able to get all these great reports. You can connect with us. You don't need to worry about paying a dime. Uh, and you know, if those 100 companies later decide, oh, I want to invite my partner ecosystem on and I want to wire all this data back into my Salesforce and get it in the hands of my sales reps, yeah, they'll become customers of ours. That's, that's our business model. But in that intermediate time, you know, we've been able to have the entire growth engine of this business be through low friction network driven growth. And I think that's going to continue to be our model. And what's amazing is when these things work, they grow exponentially. And that's that's really what we've seen to date is just this compounding exponential effect where, you know, it's almost like a consumer business. We measure this thing called K factor, which is like the virality coefficient of for everybody that signs up, how many additional companies will sign up. 
And as long as you can keep that above one, the business will grow exponentially. And that's, we, we watch it closely. We optimize for it. We do a lot of product work to, to make it hum. And that's, that's a big area. So I, I could talk all day about growth opportunities. You know, there's, there's ways of expanding use cases, expanding verticals, thinking about, you know, where this goes in the long term. But, you know, at this moment in time, I think the network effects are really the thing that we're laser focused on. And it's directly related to creating an amazing experience for our users and not slowing them down. Yeah, I love the way you position it. You, you create this value proposition that allows people to come in and then see the value of the platform versus the other way around, right? I've got mm-hmm. to make this huge investment up front and then will I get the, will I get my partners to sign up? Will, I, will this actually work for me? Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, it's, a, it's a breath of fresh air coming out of a few previous businesses where when you're in a space that is not necessarily driven by network effects in that way, and it's competitive with a lot of established other players, it's just a different playbook. It's a different motion. Like you can, you know, there's, there's ways to win, but they're not always correlated to creating an amazing user experience or creating as much value as you can for the end users. It's, it's often, you know, relegated to sales tactics or like being really, really sharp on go-to-market and, and marketing strategy. And we do all that stuff. We care a lot about it, but, um, you know, product-led growth is, is really the playbook here. And it's so much fun to run a business that, that has that as the primary driver. And then you're getting all the feedback from these users, right? Oh, I need to, I need this feature set, or I need this to be changed or tweaked. And so yeah. that's, that's, that's informing <laughs> your roadmap, right? I mean, yeah, it, it really does. I think that's, um, we're certainly not operating in a vacuum, that's for sure. Um, with yeah. 1800 some odd companies uh, on now, there's, there's no shortage of great customer feedback. So Bob, we're coming out of a year like no other what did you see this past year that you didn't expect to see? Honestly, growth. I think it's, you know, it speaks to the incredible position of privilege that a lot of us that work in the SaaS industry are in, particularly within, you know, sub-verticals of SaaS that that haven't been as directly impacted by by the pandemic. But, um, you know, it's it's really a, a remarkable story to see. We see this in, in the data not just in the growth of our own business, obviously, but in the questions that we ask in our annual State of the Partner Ecosystem report, where you know we, we just got these results back. Uh, we surveyed almost 200 partner professionals about their experience in the last year, and we compared it to the same questions that we asked them a year ago. And what's really remarkable is you know, twice as many people saw their partnership teams grow in 2020 as opposed to saw their partnership teams shrink in that same amount of time. Almost everybody has obviously gone to remote, but generally speaking, you know, people are still getting raises, salaries are still extremely competitive. People view themselves as actually being significantly more efficient and effective in their jobs in this new working mode where, you know, the uh, the overhead of a commute has been cut out and the introduction of flexibility for remote work has been introduced. And you can answer this question through a lot of different lenses, but since we're here talking about partnerships, I think it's worthwhile to kind of do the thought experiment of what does it mean for the partnerships industry when you can't go to events anymore and, you know, high five and backslap and, you know, sit down at a table or, or at a bar and hash out that next partnership uh, or, you know, put together the mechanics of how, you know, your, your year of relationships is going to grow. And I think what it does is it really starts to force people into a mode of operation that is a lot more, frankly, rational. It's much more likely to be data-driven. It's much more likely to be process-oriented. It's much more work uh, likely to be tightly integrated from a workflow standpoint into other collaborators in their business. And 
there's a certain level of discipline that gets forced on businesses when they're pushed out of being in the same physical environment and, and being able to take advantage of all those efficiencies, whether that's internal to their company or through events and whatnot, external to their partner relationships. Uh, so, you know, we've seen things, for example, like rep to rep co-selling just skyrocket in terms of how common it is as a tactic being used at these companies. It's almost 71% um, in the report that we just got uh, up from hovering around 60% uh, in the previous year. And things like that are, in our view, only going to continue where the, the best practices of how to spend your time doing this job are going to push their way into these more data-driven, disciplined, workflow-oriented, technology-enabled versions of the work. And it's going to be for the better. Uh, it's going to lead to more success and growth and outputs, measurable outputs from partner organizations. If anything, I think you know, the, the pandemic has accelerated that by, by forcing this framework of working remotely. So I'd love to learn more about that data. How do I get my hands on it? Yeah, great question. So we, if you head over to our blog, which is just blog.crossbeam.com, we will be releasing this state of the partner ecosystem report for 2021 at the tail end of January, January 21. So if you're listening to this and it's after uh, the end of January, you can probably go find it. Just Google it, frankly, state of the ecosystem report, Crossbeam 2021. You can go download it from our site. If you're waiting for that date to come along, just sign up for our newsletter. It's an awesome weekly kind of curated uh, links and articles and partnership uh, insights and thought leadership from our content team. It's uh, We've got uh, over 10,000 subscribers on it now, really high quality stuff. It's not super sales pitchy. And we'll be having a dedicated issue about the state of the partner ecosystem report when it comes out. So the blog, the newsletter, that's that's where it's at. We'll provide links for our listeners in our show notes. So this is great. This is great input. I can't wait to get my hands on it myself. You know, it's interesting because I wrote a blog post in April about, you know, where we were at that point. Nobody knew, but I did say early on, they're going to be winners and losers. And I still believe this. I fundamentally believe that the winners will be those organizations that learn that partnering is an accelerant to growth mm -hmm. and to survival, in mm -hmm. fact. So you, you're hitting the nail on the head. You've got the data now to back it up. It's really great to see the progress that's happening in our technology industry. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's logical, right? Like if you're building a, a structure, you want to have more, more nodes and more edges on that graph. They kind of reinforce each other and you know, create this certain durability where you know, being part of a fabric is much better than, than kind of being your own thread. And even the biggest companies in the world have embraced this and embraced it aggressively. And, and more and more, we're seeing that, you know, Mark Andreessen was right that software was eating the world, but we make the argument that ecosystems are eating software. And really, there comes a point where your place in your partner ecosystem becomes as important or sometimes more important than the quality of your core software product to begin with. Um, it, it's about that connectivity as much as it is about the core offering. I love what you had to say there. You know, you know, I focus in on partnering as well, and we, we share this common bond here. What do you believe, what characteristics do you believe make a great partnership? I think there, this is gets down to like more of a human kind of therapy session kind of answer. But I do think as much as I am a huge data geek and believe in the importance of systems and workflows and processes, there's a very, very real human factor there. And the, the tenants that I think make for great operators and great teammates carry their way over to being great collaborators from a partnering standpoint. And to me, that's, a really high degree of intellectual honesty, you know, a, a willingness to 
take and receive feedback to evaluate situations and find the good and the bad to kind of have a certain level of empathy for other parties that you're working with and really to be smart about creating great communication and transparency about what's expected, setting those expectations very early on, and then being diligent about not just executing on what you said you're going to do, but measuring how it's going and, and having, when it's going well, asking that important question of like, all right, great. How do we double down on this? Like, what does it look like to add a zero to the end of these numbers that we're seeing? And when it's not going well, really being able to face that head on and rather than kind of, you know, awkwardly doing your best Homer Simpson back into the bushes, actually proactively saying, is this working or not? If it's not, maybe it's better that we both focus our efforts elsewhere with other partnerships, or maybe there's some very obvious thing that we can correct against and try to make this do better. But sorry for the somewhat humanistic answer, but I think that's really true. I think if those pieces are absent, no amount of data and workflows is going to is gonna bridge that gap. Yeah, it all comes down to that. It yeah. comes down to the human element, trust, all of those things. And here's the, here's the factor you mentioned. A lot of times we never have that conversation we need to have. Mm-hmm. Like, let's go fix this or separate. It's okay. Yeah, I think it's. I think that's so true. Uh, you know, you can extend that way beyond the world of partnerships. Uh, I think that's true in people's work and people's lives. You know, it's it's the great the great human challenges having those hard conversations when they need to happen. That's for sure. So you've had an amazing career, really terrific entrepreneurship. With was there any really great advice you received getting started or when you started Crossbeam? Yeah, I think the thing that it's really easy to find good advice when you're starting out and ignore it or not really like be in a position where you're able to receive it. And when I look back on, look, the RJ metrics journey was, was, it was like my version of getting an MBA only. It took me eight or nine years instead of two. It's just like kind of going through the trenches and yes, we were able to get to an outcome that we were proud of, but you know, looker, which was one of our big competitors in the space sold to Google for, I think it was $2.4 billion. Yeah. You know, we, our outcome for RJ metrics was a single digit percentage of that. Uh, You know, it's just like, it sounds like a lot of dollars when you say it alone until you say, oh, we really captured, you know, significantly less than 10% of the value created by the companies doing the same thing in our same vintage. So we whiffed, right? I mean, we, we missed, we lost at the end of the day there. So when I look back on some of that, like why, what happened, I often think about the advice that we got in the early days and, and ways that we could have maybe actualized that a little better. And I do think there's a lot to the idea of having a very well crystallized mission, vision, and values at a very early stage inside of the business that you're building. I always thought of mission, vision, values work as being kind of like you know, big corporate speak where you get these very shallow outputs that either sound like they were written by committee or sound like they were made up on Sesame Street. Like it's it's which end of the terrible spectrum do you want to be on in terms of, you know, how uninspiring these things are. And it's true in a, in a lot of cases, that's what they look like. But I think the thing that's so fundamentally different about Crossbeam is that when we started this company, we knew what we wanted to build. Like we knew who the users were, what their pain points were. We empathized tremendously with them. We had a sense for where this was going and what we wanted this product to look like, you know, three, four, five plus years down the road and what the space was that would need to surround this product and the narrative that would need to surround its emergence in order for it to be successful. Contrast that with RJ Metrics, where literally our our mission statement at RJ Metrics was data-driven decisions are better decisions. Now, that's a great mantra, and I still believe that to this day. 
But what does that tell you about the market you're going into? What does it tell you about the product that you need to build? It really, what it does is it gives you a license to say yes to everything. Like every idea that sounds like it could be a good idea that's anywhere adjacent to data, which is basically everything in our modern world, it kind of allows you to say, oh yes, this falls under the umbrella of what we're doing in this business. And I think the great failing of RJ Metrics was that we tried to be everything for everybody. I think we ended up being a little bit more of like a services company masquerading as a software company than an actually centrally focused vision-based company that was excellent at a specific thing, as opposed to you know being something that served a need for a very, very wide universe of use cases. Um, we were too generic a product. And that's I, I got that advice in those early days, you know, plenty of people, you can listen, you know, you can listen to podcasts like this one that are, that are probably eight years old, where you've got great early innovators talking about the importance of vision and, and empathy for customers. And we heard those words, but I don't think it fit into our worldview, frankly, partly because we didn't know how to do it well. And, you know, this is where getting the, you know, getting your reps in and being a repeat entrepreneur, why venture capital firms tend to You'd be very, very aggressive in backing folks that have done it before, whether they failed or succeeded, because you kind of have to see it and experience it to come out the other end and be able to internalize that advice and, and actualize it. And I think the people that are amazing entrepreneurs at their core, which I don't consider myself to, to be that, I, I think I'm, I'm one that's like built up. I'm a Frankenstein entrepreneur that's like turned into being decent at it over time. But some people come right out of the gate and start a company at 22 and knock it out of the park. And I think those are the people that kind of have that inherent ability to crystallize that vision, greatly empathize with who their end users are, basically end up with a, a big, meaningful company as a result. Yeah, you brought up a really good point around vision, crystallizing the vision. I, I, I believe that partnerships start there too. I, I have a fundamental belief that when you're having that kumbaya meeting in order to make the translation, that in fact, you have a big, bold vision for where you want to take this thing. Absolutely true. It echoes its way into how anybody might approach any any part of their job, and and particularly people that have the responsibility of creating something new, which is very often it's something that I think is somewhat maybe unique to the partnerships world. Where if you're pursuing a career in sales, you know the average sales team that you join at a emerging high growth company, you know, might have twenty people on it. It might have a hundred people on it. If you're joining a partnerships team there's a pretty good chance you're going to be the first hire at a company of that similar stage. And if you're not the first hire, you're going to be part of you know, the, the crew of the first five, and you're going to have a disproportionate amount of ownership and responsibility. And I think that makes you, you know, a, uh, the proverbial intrapreneur in a way where you have a very important mandate to create something that's not necessarily just going through the motions that have been established by the people that came before you in that role. We have way more creators and entrepreneurs you know, per capita in the partnership industry than we have in, in other parts of the org chart. And for exactly that reason, it's what you say is incredibly true, which is the entrepreneur's mindset, the willingness to think from a long-term planning perspective and, you know, curate a mission, vision, and a set of values around what you're doing, I think can be a really great guiding light to, you know, not losing focus on what you're doing and hopefully creating a, a really valuable long-term outcome. Some great advice for anybody in our business. Really, really love what you have to say here, Bob. So Bob, if you had a personal billboard, and this is a metaphor actually for a message you'd like to send out to the world, what would you share on it? <laughs> oh, I got to think of something catchy. I, you know, a phrase I've always loved, it was just like really dates me back to my age and when I went to high school is keep it real. People used to say that all the time. 
Yeah. And there's, uh, I also used to say that all the time and still kind of think it a lot in that, you know, going back to all those human aspects we were talking about before, um, and frankly, to all of the ways in which data is available to actually, you know, give some real teeth to the arguments that you make or the strategies that you pursue. There's this this duality that I think exists across all dimensions of you know work in our, our modern industry, where there's kind of the real stuff and then there's the vanity stuff, and you can see it in you know a classic example is is like actionable metrics versus vanity metrics. What are the numbers that you can look at that will actually tell you how to do your job differently or whether or not things are going well, as opposed to the version of the chart that's going up and to the right uh, that the the first time founder will ravenously look for in their data and then drop into their VC pitch deck. Like there's a big difference between what's real and what's not real there. But then you look at it through the partnerships lens and you get the same thing you were just talking about. Those PR driven uh, handshake high five style partnerships that don't go anywhere versus the ones where it's actually a real partnership where people are creating these workflows and these outputs that are, are, material to the businesses that they support and that actually scale and that persist over long periods of time. There's a difference between keeping it real and not keeping it real in in that world. And, you know, I could give a dozen more examples, but at the end of the day, I think where you find your most real inner peace and also where you find your best business outcomes is, is when you keep it real. I love that. Keep it real. And, you know, Bob, in this series, we're focusing in on, you know, what we expect to see in 2021. So, any advice for partners as we start 2021 and we leap into it, what advice would you give to our listeners to help them optimize for success? Keep it real. Uh, <laughs> I think it really, it, it is kind of, you know, tying all back to that. I, I would say embrace the fact that really, really important change is happening under our feet right now in the partnerships world. And that change is not just because products like Crossbeam exist and you can start to you know, take action on these relationships in ways you couldn't before and scale them in ways you couldn't before. It's bigger than that. It's way bigger than that because it, the change that's happening is actually sitting outside of the partnerships realm and sitting in the realm of how products get built and interconnectivity between companies takes form in the very first place. And what what's powering that is the maturity of the API economy intersected with the mass universal adoption of cloud software, even by the biggest slowing moving businesses in the world. This idea of digital transformation, that's kind of the key you know, buzzword if you'd like to read Gartner or Forrester reports or look at what's happening inside of the world's largest companies. Underpinning that is how do we get our data into the cloud? How do we use these modern technology platforms that create a more effective mobile workforce? And that's happening in basically every single company out there you know, that, that's got any kind of heft to it in, in the B2B and B2C focused world. So combine these two things, right? Thing number one, every company in the world has their most important data sitting on systems of record that are connected to the cloud in some way. And then part two, the API economy has made it so that all those systems of record that are connected to the cloud have ways to programmatically get data out and get data in, in an easier fashion than ever. That means that data is reaching a point where it is truly at its most portable uh, and its version that best supports API development and integ technical integration development between products. And that means that the fabric of partnerships and the fabric of 
services that get provided on top of those partnerships has never been denser or richer. And that trend is, is continuing exponentially. And the relevancy of that to the biggest companies in the world with the biggest balance sheets and the most dollars is growing exponentially in tandem with it. So what's happening out there in the partner world is, is truly, I think, in the early innings still, but it's going to move really, really rapidly. And we're going to continue to see an increased focus on the work that gets done in these spaces and the impact and influence that it can have over how businesses grow. I, I think my advice to partner folks is to just like change the aperture of your lens. Uh, if you're sitting in a world thinking about, um, you know, just the tactics of how to optimize against that, that existing partnership, that's great. And you can do more, but I think you can also try to be optimizing for a world where, again, you're adding a, a zero or two zeros to the end of the things you're doing, whether it's how big your team is, how much a percentage of the company's revenue you influence, the dollars of revenue you influence. These things all end up being touched in a really important way by these tailwinds that are going on out there in the market. And we're only at the beginning of it. It's, it's going to be a, a rip-roaring couple of years here in partnerships. I think it's going to be extremely exciting times. I talk about this as, in fact, we're going to come out of this time. I believe in it's a renaissance that we're going to see. We're seeing it now, like the the hyper focus we've had to have because we've all been working remote. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to come out of this time better than before. What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think every, every everything I just said, layer on the accelerator that is remote work on top of that, and it only gets it gets more exciting. Couldn't agree more. Bob, I want to thank you so much for making time to join us. It's been a real pleasure to have you on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering. Thank you so much for joining today. Vince, great to be here and hope we do it again sometime. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. We're going to come back with maybe mid-year predictions. We'll talk again. <laughs> we can see everything I was wrong about six months from now. Stay tuned. <laughs> I doubt it. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Ultimate Partnerships. Ultimate Partnerships helps you get the most results from your partnerships. Get partnerships right, optimize for success, deliver results. For more information, go to ultimate-partnerships.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzione. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.